He has been invited to preach at the church he grew up in, and uh, they're celebrating their 50th anniversary, and so uh, he is there for that. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to give a sermon at uh, the church that we were members of in Wheaton, Illinois. And uh, it so happened that in the sanctuary where I gave this sermon, well, I was the last one to do so. No sermon was ever given in that sanctuary ever again. A few months ago, I had the opportunity to give a sermon in the uh, old sanctuary here, what is now the, the new fellowship hall. And there was never a sermon given in that sanctuary again. So it's with a bit fear and trepidation <laughs> that I come into this new sanctuary uh, in hopes that the pattern does not continue. But if it does, and I hope it doesn't, but if it does, what a text to go out on. Turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 3. You'll find that uh, in your pew Bibles on page 1051, John chapter 3. John chapter 3, we're going to be looking at uh, verses 13 to 21. John chapter 3, verse 13. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. The word of the Lord. So Pastor Jeremy has been leading us on a study through the Gospel of John. And and last week, he introduced us to John chapter 3, to this conversation that is going on between Jesus and Nicodemus. And to remind you of who Nicodemus is, Nicodemus was a Pharisee, a a man who had committed his life to the study of the Scripture— Uh, He was a religious teacher of Israel. He was uh, a leader in in all things theology. You know the type. 
right? Uh, in, in our culture, this person would be someone who, you know, studied theology, has degrees in it, maybe a PhD, working towards a PhD in it. This is the type of person that you will find, you know, teaching religion at a college, you know, at a seminary, perhaps at his church, he, he teaches a Sunday school class, or maybe when the pastor is away in Nevada, he comes and he fills in at the pulpit. You know the type I'm talking about. Good looking, you know, <laughs> awesome, you know, that type. Yet here was Nicodemus, right? With all of these qualifications, yet he didn't understand, right? He didn't understand what Jesus was teaching, he didn't understand who Jesus was. And, and Jesus is, is engaging in a conversation with him. And as Jeremy pointed out, uh, Nicodemus asked the question, how can someone be a part of the kingdom of God? How can someone get to heaven? And Jesus answers, you have to be born again. And as, as Jeremy explained, being born again is, is an act of, of new spirit, of a new heart, of a, of a new life that God gives. Nicodemus asked, how can this be? And as we saw last week, the wind blows where the wind blows. It's God's doing. There's nothing you can do. It's God's doing. The wind blows where the wind blows. And as Jesus is answering this question of Nicodemus, how is it possible for someone to be born again. The first part of the answer, which we looked at last Sunday, the first part is God's sovereignty. It's God's doing at God's timing. The second part of the answer is what we're looking at today. The second part is, is sort of the mechanism of how this accomplished, the means for how it happens, and, and what being born again looks like. As I was preparing for this message, it, it struck me how confusing this all must have seemed to Nicodemus. How his mind must have just been jumbled by what Jesus had to say. Because really, as you look through it, it appears that Jesus gives a bunch of, well, what had to be, or had to feel like absurd statements, statements that made no sense, statements that seemed illogical. And as we jump into this conversation, we, we see that Jesus uh, has been rebuking Nicodemus, has been chastising him for not understanding. And in verse 12 of chapter 3, I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe, how then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? He's, he's rebuking him. He's, he's correcting them. Jesus is saying, listen, you don't even get the simple stuff. I want to tell you things of heaven. And, and why should you listen to me? Why should we listen to Jesus as he tells the things of heaven? Well, because as verse 13 tells us, he is the only one who has the right to speak of it. He's the only one that knows. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. This had to be the first of what seemed like an absurd statement to Nicodemus. Jesus is saying, listen, no one's gone up to heaven, checked it all out, and come down to be able to tell you the truth. But I actually am from there. 
I am from there, and I have come down to tell you this. I am the Son of Man. The Son of Man is an interesting title. It, it can be used in a couple of different ways. One way the Son of Man as a phrase is used in the New Testament is just as another way of saying human, man. It also sometimes is used as a, a circumlocution for I. In other words, another way of saying me or I. So instead of saying, you know, I am going to the party, I might say the Son of Man is going to the party. But the most frequent way it is used, and the way Jesus uses it when he speaks of himself, is as a title. The titles, you know, Son of God, Lord, Messiah, and Son of Man. Now, Son of Man was not a low title. It comes from Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel's having these visions where he sees all these different Creatures, these different animals that represent the kingdoms that are waging battle with the faithful, with the people of God. And into this vision, Daniel sees one like the Son of Man, who is at the side of the Almighty, at the side of the Ancient of Days. And this Son of Man figure fights on behalf of the faithful. He is given sovereignty over everything. He is giving all the praise. He is the one that represents the people of God. He is the one with the ancient of days. This is who the Son of Man is. And here is Jesus saying to Nicodemus, I'm the Son of Man. That had to just put his mind in a blender. How could this man, this son of a carpenter, this peasant, this nobody, be the son of man. It's the interesting thing about Jesus is he doesn't take compliments very well. He doesn't like compliments. You notice in the beginning of this conversation, Nicodemus had been quite nice. He had called Jesus rabbi. He had called him teacher. He must have thought he was giving a, a good amount of respect to Jesus. But Jesus doesn't want to be called rabbi, doesn't want to merely be called teacher. He is the son of man. He doesn't want our compliments. He wants our praise. Compliments are too shallow for Jesus. He doesn't take compliments well. We cannot simply say of Jesus, good philosopher. Jesus was a good philosopher. We simply can't say of Jesus that he was a good moral ethicist. We are not allowed to say of Jesus, you know what? Jesus represented the, the liberation of the oppressed who spoke truth to power. He's one of the 99%. We cannot say of Jesus, he is a political platform. We can't give him merely compliments because he is the son of man. Compliments are an insult to one worthy of such praise. And just as Nicodemus was probably trying to figure out how this Jesus 
could say he's the son of man, Jesus hits him with what he is going to do as the son of man, what the mission is for him as the son of man. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the son of man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert. Jesus is explaining his mission by analogy. And Nicodemus would have understood the analogy. This um, reference to the serpent in the desert and, and Moses, it comes from Numbers 21. It comes from the time period when the Israelites have been rescued out of Egypt, but before they come into the promised land, when they're wandering in the wilderness, when, when God is supplying them with manna for food. And at one point during this time, the Israelites start to grumble. They start to rebel. They, they go to Moses and they say, we wish we weren't here. What have you done? Why have you led us out into the wilderness? There's no water. There's no real food. And the food we got, we can't stand. It's horrible. Right? They sound like a bunch of impudent kids on a road trip. Right? I mean, this is who they sound like. They're rebellious. And because of their rebellion, God sends a bunch of venomous snakes into their midst. And venomous snakes do what venomous snakes do. They started biting the people. And the people started to die. And because of this, the Israelites realize what has happened, what is occurring. And they go to Moses and they plead with Moses. They say, you know, pray to God to to spare us. And God tells Moses, go make a snake, make a a bronze snake and, and put it on a pole. And anyone who looks at that snake, anyone who's been bitten, who has venom that is taking their life, they look upon that bronze snake, their life will be spared. It really is one of the creepiest stories in the Bible, if you think about it, right? But this is the analogy. This is the analogy that Jesus is using. Now, Nicodemus probably, like most of us, would hear that sort of metaphor and will begin trying to unpack the metaphor see what symbol, symbolism might be there, not realizing how literal this metaphor would be. The bronze snake was put on a pole so that those who had been bitten by venomous snakes could look upon it and be spared. Jesus was put on a pole. He was put on a piece of wood conscripted by the Roman government as a means of execution. Jesus was put on a pole so that those who look up on him in the cross and believe might be saved, might have eternal life. The analogy is so perfect and so ironic. I mean, it's quite incongruous. You have... People bitten by snakes look at a snake and they're cured. With Jesus, you have people, like you and me, who have the the venom of our sin waging through the sinews of our soul, 
right? The plague of our sin that demands the death of both body and soul. And, and in this death, the, the antidote is to look upon a death. That eternal life comes from looking upon a death. It seems so ironic, and it must have sounded so absurd. You know, now the Israelites were suffering from an earthly malady. And they needed, and what was required was sort of an earthly picture of grace. We are suffering from an eternal spiritual death. And what was required and demanded was a heavenly, a heavenly, eternal means of grace. So this is why the Son of Man came. This is why the cross happened. The the cross didn't happen. The crucifixion of Christ didn't happen as the result of a good man speaking truth to power and suffering for it. The cross didn't happen as the result of some prophet so committed to his belief that he was martyred for it. The cross did not happen as a series of sort of unfortunate events that just show the violence of men on good people. The cross was not an accident. The cross didn't happen because here was a well-meaning guy who tried to change the wheel of the world only to have it roll over him. The cross happened because it was the mission of the Son of Man. He came to die on the cross. He came to be on a pole so that those who believe in him might have eternal life. Not just believe that he existed. Not just believe that he walked the earth, but believe that he came to die on a cross so that we might have the poison of our sin remedied. It's had to seem absurd. And, and, and Jesus continues. He continues to say things that must have been just wholly irrational. If the mission of the Son of Man was to come to die on the cross, the, the reason for it is striking. For God so loved the world that he gave his one And only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Classic verse. John 3.16. So much is encapsulated in that verse. It's one of the verses of the faith. It's one of the first verses kids learn. For God so loved the world. You see it everywhere. I mean, it's ubiquitous. Look at sports games, right? Doesn't matter if you're, if you're watching a football game, if you're watching a basketball game, if you're watching a, a, a hockey game. Doesn't matter. You will see 
someone, and I don't know how they get these seats. I, I, I really don't. But you will see someone behind the goal, behind the goal post, behind home plate, holding up a white poster board written on it, John 3.16. You see it everywhere. You know, if there ever comes a time where I'm fortunate enough to get one of those seats. Hallelujah. And if, but if that ever happens, I want to bring with me white poster board and a marker. Because if I so happen to sit next to someone who has the John 3.16 poster board, I want to hold up right next to him a sign that says context. Right? Context. John 3.16 doesn't come out of the blue. It comes right after Jesus has said, I came to die on a pole so that you can have life. And the the motivation of this, the reason this is occurring is because of God's love. The cross is under the sovereignty of God. It is instituted by the sovereignty of God and it is constituted by his love. Why? Why did Jesus die on the cross? Because God wanted him to. God wanted his son to die on a cross because he loved the world so much. So that those who believe might have eternal life. We just came out of Christmas. Love Christmas. I love it. I love giving gifts. I, I, I take uh, a pleasure in giving good gifts, thoughtful gifts. You know, so usually about the summertime, I start thinking about and listening to what my wife says she likes or things that strike her attention. You know, and I start, I start making mental notes of, of how that might play out as a Christmas gift. I do the same with my kids. You know, they, they always get sort of the, the one big gift that's the last gift they open, you know, and, and, and you know, from my um, first grader, he had a big Lego pirate ship that he opened. You know, my third grader got an iPod, you know, an iTouch that he opened. And just to see the excitement, I love Christmas. But you see, we give gifts. I give gifts that are appropriate, right? There's an appropriate level of gift giving. A gift giving that is in proportion with the relationship you have, with the person that you're giving it to. Those who are most dear to you, you usually give the better gifts to. I mean, it's just the way it tends to work out. I mean, think about it. If last Christmas I gave Kim a piece of jewelry, what would you say? You'd say, oh, great, nice. Did she like it? Was it lovely? What kind? Right? It would be fine. If I gave a different woman jewelry for Christmas, you would say, whoa, that was inappropriate. Right? You raise your eyebrow. Right? It's out of proportion. I don't do that. I shouldn't do that. Yet, God gave the greatest gift possible. His son. Right? His son. God the son who was with God from the very beginning. From the eternal beginning who along with the Spirit, you know, is, is together forever. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, right? From the beginning. This is what God gave. He gave the greatest thing he could give 
the greatest present in his son to the world. This is completely irrational and out of proportion. The world is not a worthy recipient of such a gift. It doesn't fit. The Greek word for world is cosmos. And I had my uh, seminary students in one of my classes last fall. I was teaching a class on uh, interpretation and methods of the study of the New Testament. And one of their assignments is they had to do a word study. And I had them do a word study on how John uses cosmos. Now, I didn't know I was going to be actually filling in on John, so I didn't use them as sort of cheap sermon preparation, um, though it's a good idea. The, but what, what was interesting, cosmos, the way John uses the world, the word world, overwhelmingly has a sense and a characteristic of vileness, of wickedness, of evil. The world is characterized as a place of darkness. It is characterized as the, as the sphere of sin. The world is depicted throughout John as hating Christ, as hating God, as hating those who follow Christ. In fact, several occasions in John, the prince of the world, the ruler of the world, is Satan. This is the sphere This is the entity that God loved so much to give his son. You know, on on a good day, on one of my final moments, I may give a gift to someone I know a little bit. And I might even give a gift to someone that's a complete stranger that I don't know. But I have never, my entire life, given a gift to someone that hates me. I have never given a gift to someone who met me and spit in my face. I have never thought about the present that I could buy for someone who met me, who knows me, and then went and slandered me to everyone they knew. That God so loved the vile, wicked, God-hating world that he sent the greatest gift he had to die on a pole so that those who believe might have eternal life. It seems so absurd. This, This... whole thing doesn't make sense. You know, I used to believe that and think how crazy it was that when people would hear about this gift of God, that when people would hear about the death of Christ so that I might have eternal life, of how this death, if I believed in it, would take away all my sin and take away all my death and take away all my loneliness and all, and all the abandonment and would take away all my fears. I, I used to think it was so strange that when people heard that, 
but they didn't believe. I've changed my thought on that. What is absurd? What really is absurd is that I came to believe. How was it possible that I could come to believe this? I was a part of this God-hating world. My entire being was a God-hating being. How is it possible that I could ever come to believe? You see, I wasn't neutral. The world is not neutral. We are not a bunch of undecided voters trying to say, am I going to go Christ or not Christ? What should I do here? No. We are very much decided against God. So how is it possible? Don't you know the evil my eyes have seen? Don't you know the slander my lips have spoken? Don't you know the wickedness these hands have done? Don't you know the pride that my heart holds on to? How? And then the wind blows. The wind blows where the wind blows. I could do no more to be born again than my own sons could do to be born. The wind blows where the wind blows. You see, I love the darkness because my deeds were evil. But then the wind blew and the light shone. God showed me the light. It's not because I was any better. It's not because my sins were any less. More to more the contrary, the light shows how evil and vile my sins are. And I want to come into the light because I want all my sins to be known before God because I want him to take it all. I don't want one droplet of that poison to be in my soul any longer. The wind blew. I was having a conversation, and I'll close with this. I was having a conversation with an older woman. We were talking about uh, people of different religions. And she had asked the question. Uh, she said, how is it possible for these people who follow different religions to be such good people? To be so Christ-like? How is it possible for them to have fruits of the Spirit? You know, that they're so gentle and they're so kind and self-sacrificing and honest. How is it possible? It's a good question. Because she says, isn't, aren't these fruits of the Spirit, aren't these evidence of, of a changed life? Isn't this what, when someone comes to Christ, what they look like? How's, I don't understand. And through the course of the conversation, I began to share with her, That the first fruit, the distinctive fruit of someone who believes in Christ, the foundational fruit is what do you see when you see the cross? 
Do you want to know if you're born again? What do you see when you see the cross? Do you see an old relic of an ancient faith? Or do you see the power of God? Do you see the violence of angry men? Or do you see the love of God? What do you see when you see the cross? Do you see a a symbol of a voting block, a political group? Or do you see the beauty of God? Do you see the death, the martyrdom of a good man? Do you see God crucified? What do you see when you see the cross? If you're here and you, for the first time, are starting to feel the wind blow. If you are starting to see the cross differently, well, let's talk about it. We will have people here at the end of the service who pray, and they'll pray with you about it. There are uh, men and women sitting next to you who are followers of Christ because the wind blew on their soul. If you are a Christian, if you follow Christ, the cross isn't simply something for conversion. It is the anchor of who you are. What do you see when you see the cross? There is no pit so deep, no cave so dark that the light and the life of the cross can be dampened or diminished. What do you see when you see the cross? Do you see? Something absurd. Or do you see the most beautiful news you have ever heard?